If you have a Bible with you, perhaps you could grab it and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk uh, for the last time, certainly in this series. By all means, uh, you're more than welcome to turn to it by yourselves again. Uh, who knows, in a few years' time, we may even look at it again. But uh, for the last time in this series, the book of Habakkuk. Just to very quickly catch you up in what's going on in this book, is pretty much a series of conversations between a prophet who, funnily enough, is called Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk basically starts off by ranting about all the sin and suffering and injustice in the world. He's just sick and tired of what he sees in the world around him. And so he brings his frustration to God, which incidentally, I'd suggest is where we should always go when we get frustrated. We should always bring what we're feeling to God. And that's what we find Habakkuk doing here in this book. He basically asks God, are you tired of all of this yet? I mean, what's your plan? And when do you intend to do something about all of this? If you remember, God answers him and says, well, actually, I do have a plan. Here it is. There are these pretty nasty people that live right next door to you called the Babylonians. And what I'm going to do They've been wanting to attack your nation for a long time now, and all this time I've protected you, but because your people keep on sinning, they keep on disobeying, they keep on rebelling against me, I'm now going to let the Babylonians come over the border and rough you up. At which point, Habakkuk suddenly has another series of questions to ask God, like, isn't there a plan B? I mean, remember, I live there as well. Can't we try and resolve this some other way? And God basically says, Habakkuk, you need to trust me. Please, trust me. I am a good God. I know what I'm doing. And after going away for a while and reflecting on all of this, Habakkuk composes a song, which we're going to be looking at pretty much for the rest of our time today. But just out of interest, Show of hands on this one. How many of you are arty types? I don't know, you're a little bit creative. You write songs, you compose poetry, you paint, you do other creative stuff. Show of hands, fair few of you. Okay, hands down. I want to encourage you to spend time with the ultimate creator. And I'm willing to promise you that if you will spend more time with God, you will end up becoming even more creative because he will inspire you. And that's what we see happening here in this passage. Habakkuk sings this phenomenal song in response to God having spent time with him. Now, before we turn our attention to the lyrics of this song... I've been here long enough to know that really on any given Sunday, there are going to be plenty of people in the room who are doing great right now. I mean, there are a whole bunch of people here who are excelling at being single, for example. You're loving God with a passion. You're serving Him well in whatever context He places you. There are also a lot of people here today whose marriage is great. You're perhaps at the beginning where you haven't realized yet there are going to be some issues further down the line. Or maybe you're deeper in where you've begun working through some of those issues and right now you're in a good spot together. Many of you, you're thriving in your workplace. 
you actually wake up in the morning and look forward to going to work every day. And, and you see, what you do at work as part of the mission that God has given you for your life. And then there are others of you who are perhaps not in such a great place. You're just not. You're, you're maybe not handling your singleness quite so well. It's like you don't have your eyes where they need to be. You've got some sort of functional saviour or messiah in a man or woman that you're hoping you might marry one day. It's like you've turned them into an idol, as we were looking at last week. Maybe your marriage isn't all that you'd hoped it would be. Maybe your job is the source of a whole load of pressure and frustration for you. Maybe you struggle with loneliness or ill health or depression. I want you to know, the Bible is always honest. It it never ever promises us a quick fix to all of our problems. But what it does do is show us how to find a firm foundation regardless of circumstance. And again, that's what we're going to find as we look together at this next passage in Habakkuk. There's this pattern that's established through this song that Habakkuk sings to God that I believe has very important implications for all of us. It's this rhythm of remembering and rejoicing and renewing our strength in God. And really, that's the rhythm that we need to find in our lives as well. If we're to stand strong in the face of all the problems that life will throw at us, we need to keep remembering who God is, what He's done, what He's accomplished on our behalf. We need to keep on rejoicing in that, and we need to keep on finding our strength in Him. And so, I want us now to take a look at this song of Habakkuk. And as we look at it, I'm going to draw out these three main themes, these three main rhythms that I want us to build into our lives. The first one is remembrance. Let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. Now, just to say, if you look at your kind of uh, notes at the bottom of your Bible, uh, that's possibly a musical term. Some people think it's a musical instrument. Quite honestly, it doesn't matter. This is a song, and there's some kind of musical thing going on here. Let's look at what the song actually is. Habakkuk sings, I'm not going to sing for your benefit and for mine. I'm going to read the words, but imagine him singing them. If, If you're musical, you want to compose a song out of this, feel free later. Maybe we'll look at it next week. Who knows? Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I want us to pause there for a while. It's like Habakkuk remembers what God has done in the past and straight away it leads him to pray. 
He's kind of saying, God, the Scriptures are full of stories of you showing your glory and your strength. Again and again, I read that you have brought breakthrough for your people. It's like you've dealt swiftly with sin and with injustice and with poverty and all the things that are warring against your goodness and your name and your glory being seen across the earth. And you've delivered and you've freed and you've protected and you've provided again and again and again for your people. You've changed their heart. You've brought transformation and life to them. And Habakkuk says, God, I've heard all these stories. I've heard of all these things, but I've never seen them. It's like, in my day, everyone sins. In my generation, justice doesn't come swiftly. In my day, the wicked prosper, and those who are righteous suffer. And it seems to have been going on for a very long time now. God, would you please come, and would you show your power in our day? How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have had this same experience when you read the Bible and you see God show up in amazing ways and you're there kind of scratching your head wondering, I mean, how come I've never seen that? How come I've never seen those kinds of miracles? How come I've never seen judgment come to the godless? God, why don't you act to stop the injustice in our nation? God, why haven't we seen those kind of things that Rich was talking about earlier in another part of the world? Why is it not happening here? Maybe you listened to Johnny's recent series on normal service resuming. You heard all those stories he told of, of God breaking through in power throughout the history of the church. And you're desperate for God to show up like that today. Don't you long, like Habakkuk, for that day when God shows up in power and transforms our nation, transforms our city, transforms the area where we live, where all of a sudden, the majority of the people that you work with, the people that you live near, the people that you go to school or college with, that they would love Jesus, that their sins would be forgiven, that things would be different, that people who are causing depression and harm and disgrace and shame and suffering and evil would finally be dealt with. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? There are plenty of times and seasons in history where God really has shown up like that. And Habakkuk here is singing, I've heard of it. I've read about it. I know all the stories, but I've never actually seen it with my own eyes. And I desperately want to see it. But here's the important thing. Rather than getting disappointed and disillusioned, and just kind of throwing in the towel and giving up, it leads him to pray. It brings him before God to intercede, to plead with God. God, please do something. God, please, I've heard the stories, renew them in our day. God, please, in your wrath, remember mercy. Because Habakkuk knows that God is just. It's not like he can turn a blind eye to sin. You can't offend a holy and righteous God and there be no consequences. There is always consequence for sin. God comes in wrath. He comes to judge. He will ultimately deal with sin. And Habakkuk says, God, please come in that way 
but also remember mercy. Please, remember mercy, remember forgiveness, remember compassion, remember love. Of course, we see this, don't we, most clearly in the coming of Jesus. Not only does God come in in certain ways and certain seasons, certain times, God has actually come as one of us. Jesus Christ, fully God, broke into human history fully as a man. And as a man, he was tempted just as we are. He never ever committed a sin. He went to the cross, and on the cross, I guess Habakkuk's prayer here is ultimately answered. You see, on the cross, we see this wonderful uh, coming together of justice, the wrath of God, and mercy, the grace of God. When Jesus went to the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin at all to become sin for us, to take on our sin so that in him on the cross, we might become the righteousness of God. We would take on his rightness, his right standing before the Father, and we would now have that. You know, One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I love Jesus so much is because I know personally that I deserve wrath. And Jesus went to the cross and took the punishment on himself that I know I deserve for all my sin. He took on that punishment for my past sin, my present sin, and my future sin. He endured the wrath, the righteous judgment of his Father in my place. That's why from the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He he suffered, he was forsaken where I should have suffered, where I should have been forsaken. He was penalized, if you like, where I should have been penalized. And when he then cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. I guess he was speaking of those who drove him to the cross, but I guess also I'm counted as part of that number. Through his death, God has forgiven me. That's mercy. So when I die and I stand before God, I won't have to bear the punishment for my sin because Jesus already has. I don't need to fear the judgment that really, quite honestly, I know I deserve. Jesus has already stood in my place. In Jesus, God, in his wrath, in his justice, has also remembered mercy. And so, as Habakkuk goes on to remember many accounts of how God, throughout the course of the Old Testament, delivered His people from slavery. We today can look back to the ultimate deliverance that took place when Jesus died on the cross. And as we, along with Habakkuk, remember our history, we, like Him, get a very different perspective on our present, on today, and on our future, on tomorrow. It's like In remembering what God has done for us in the past, it inevitably leads to faith. I want us to pick it up again in verse 3. We read, God came from Teman 
the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. Now, we'll agree here. Those are pretty weird lines for a song. I mean, we don't tend to sing songs like that. I mean, I don't think I've ever been in a church context where we've sung about plagues and pestilence. Plagues went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath, you strode through the earth. And in anger, you threshed the nations. Again, got to admit, pretty strange song, isn't it? Going to finish. I'll tell you, try and explain what he's talking about here. Verse 13. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot with his own spear. You pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to deliver the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Here's what I think Habakkuk's doing. The Babylonians, if you remember, are on the brink of invading his country. Because remember, God hasn't relented. God hasn't changed his mind. Habakkuk says in chapter 2, surely you're not going to do this. I mean, God, you are way too holy to do this. Remember what God says? Hey, get your calendar out because it is coming soon. There is no avoiding this. So with the Babylonians approaching and I guess all of the pain and all of the suffering that it's going to mean for God's people, Habakkuk here is singing this song about the faithfulness of God. It's like over and over again you have these reminders coming through this song of God's faithfulness in history. Who parted the Red Sea to deliver God's people? God did. Who who stopped the River Jordan so God's people could go through on dry land? God did. Who drove out the the giants in the land of Canaan? God did. Habakkuk here is remembering that being delivered from slavery and being brought into the promised land really was all down to the work of God. They were powerless to do anything about it. God planned it. God enabled it. God brought it all about. So, How did they get out of Egypt when they were slaves there? Did did they kind of rise up and battle the mighty Egyptian army? No. 
Remember the story? Plagues of frogs, blood, darkness, the cattle die, then the firstborn sons die. It's pestilence and plagues. By pestilence and plague, you brought us out. Then God parts the Red Sea and the Jordan River, and he drives out the giants in the land. Remember Jericho? Joshua comes to God's people, camped outside the promised land, and says, show of hands, how many warriors do we have here? Remember how many warriors, not warriors, they had quite a few of them. Remember how many warriors they had? None. Had nobody at all with any experience in combat. What about weapons? Do we have any weapons? Some guy holds up his trumpet. So Joshua's like, okay, how many of those do we have? Great. Here's the plan. We're going to march across the Jordan, and I know it's high tide, and it looks pretty difficult to cross right now, but God's going to get us across. Once we get across into Canaan, we're going to surround Jericho, and we're just going to walk in a circle. And we're going to blow our trumpets, and then we're going to leave. And then we're going to come back the next day, and we're going to do it all over again. And the next day, we're going to do the same thing again. Now, I guess I kind of feel like I'm a man of faith, at least a bit. But in this meeting, I think in all probability, I'd have gone, look, Joshua, I'm not trying to question your military strategy, but quite honestly, I think we're going to get slaughtered here. I mean, for starters, they're going to be throwing oil down on our heads. That doesn't sound very pleasant. They're going to be firing arrows down on us. I mean, slightly ahead of my time, I know, but let's be more like the SAS. Why don't we go in there all covert? I mean, why don't we dismantle and get in there from the inside out? Why don't we kind of gather some of Rich's new friends and try and do it together? I mean, we might get somewhere that way. I mean, Joshua's like, no, get your trumpet. Bit of afterthought also. Do we have any banners around here? Let's get banners and trumpets. Come on, let's go to war. And then what happens? the walls come tumbling down. So Habakkuk's point here is, God, you did this. I mean, we certainly didn't do that. All this threshing the nations and churning the waters, this is an illustration. It all points to God's faithfulness to his people in some of the very darkest times in their history, when they were brought out of slavery, were then faced with an army far more powerful than them. How much more is this true for us as we look back to the cross? Our greatest enemies, sin, hell, and death, fully defeated, overcome when Jesus died on the cross. He rose again to prove his victory. He's preparing a place for us right now to go and share eternity with him. How much more do we look back and say, this wasn't us, we could never save ourselves. We couldn't deal with these problems of sin, hell, and death. Wouldn't even try to sort it out. We can't. We're powerless. God, you did that. And so Habakkuk, in his impending despair, as he looks at the trouble he's facing in the present and the future, he's looking back. He's remembering the faithfulness of God in dark days past, and it leads him to a place of faith for the future. It also, secondly, leads to rejoicing. Now, I think there's this idea that when things really fall apart, as Christians, we should still be really happy 
and should constantly be walking around with this kind of permanent smile on our face. That is not what I'm talking about here. I want you just to listen to Habakkuk. He's going to be pretty blunt, pretty honest. He's going to be straight with us. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. I want to say this to you as regularly, as often as I can, to try and dispel this illusion that you can completely control your life, because you can't. That that there's no one in this room whose life can't be altered forever by simply answering their phone and hearing devastating news. And although I think a lot of the time, a lot of us live as though it's never going to happen to us. At the end of the day, none of us is safe from that call. And for those of you here who have received the equivalent of that call, you know what it means to not be able to stand, to have your legs give out from underneath you, to feel as though decay has crept into your bones for your lips to quiver, to be overwhelmed with sorrow. That's what Habakkuk says he's feeling. This isn't a kind of glib, hallelujah anyway. It's not that. Decay crept into my bones. He's really honest about the pain he's feeling here. Then look at this next line. So key. He says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So remember, God's told him, this is what's going to happen to Judah. But then all of chapter 2 is how he's then going to destroy the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk here is saying, God, do what you're going to do. At the end of the day, I know you're for us. I genuinely believe you love us. Whatever happens, I know that you're good. I know that in the end, justice will prevail. And so he rests in that, despite the fact that the pretty fearsome Babylonians are still coming. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, I just want to stop there because some of you will be familiar with these verses and therefore they kind of just go over your head. I want you to feel the full weight of what's happening in this text. If there are no buds on the tree, what does that mean? You're not going to get any fruit from it. If there aren't any grapes on the vines or crops in the field this year, that means there won't be anything to eat or drink next year. If the sheep don't like one another, you haven't got any more sheep coming. If there's not a whole lot of love and affection going on in the barn, you don't have any more cattle coming. 
So Habakkuk here is painting this really very bleak picture. Not only is today very, very difficult, but it doesn't look like things are going to get any better anytime soon. Now again, I think some of you can relate to this. It's like things have got so bad that trying to look through the darkness of today into tomorrow only makes things seem darker still. You know that the issue that you are grappling with won't be solved overnight. However far into the future you look, you can't see any solution. And so I want you to look at Habakkuk's response here. So I really believe the transformation is spectacular compared to the previous two chapters. Let's pick it up again in verse 17. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now remember, as we've been seeing in the previous two chapters, What we see Habakkuk doing again and again is he has this goal. He has this thing that he wants more than he wants to know, worship, follow and love God. Basically, he's frustrated that justice isn't being done in Judah, so he complains to God. God answers his prayer. He says, rest assured, I'm going to discipline Judah. And then Habakkuk's complaint is about how God is going to do that. It's like all the time, Habakkuk is wanting to use God for some other goal. Use God to get something he wants out of him. See the same thing happening all the time today. People go, yeah, I'll accept God if he'll help me with my marriage. Yeah, I'll love God if he'll help me with my finances. Yeah, I'll take God if he'll help me get a better job. Yeah, I'll follow God if he'll rectify this situation. And then when that doesn't happen, all of a sudden it's as though God has betrayed them because he didn't give them what he never promised to give them in the first place. So the end goal wasn't God. He said it was what God could bring. Now, that's not sinful if that's salvation. It's not sinful if we look to God to save us. I mean, only he can. It is sinful in every other category. And if that's you, 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 you've put yourself, I believe, in an unbelievably dangerous situation. I'll tell you why. Because the only joy in the entire universe that cannot be taken from you is joy in Jesus. Every other joy in the universe can be taken from you. No matter how much you lock it down, no matter how much you fight to defend it, no matter how much you try to protect it, it's like trying to hold oil in your hand. You you just can't. And so when tragedy strikes, you lose your health. When you lose a loved one, when the bank account dries up, when you get fired from your job, when your business fails, when you're rejected, when all that you've built your worth on is stripped from you, then you're in a lot of trouble. So, for example, and I know this is hard. Part of my job is to sometimes say the hard things because I care. If your greatest joy is in your spouse, your husband, your wife. What happens when they die? 
or if they get sick, or if they get weak and can't do for you the things that make you feel like they're your deepest joy. Well, your life's got to be wrecked. Or what if your deepest joy is your children? What happens when something happens to one of them? Or if your greatest joy is rooted in the thought of getting married and having kids, then how do you try and rebuild your life if that never happens? If your greatest joy is getting a particular job, or having a particular ministry in the church, or living in a certain area, or earning a certain amount of money, how do you find the motivation to keep on going if it doesn't work out? Now, I don't want to fall into the trap of making this too narrow. Without Jesus, you can still rebuild. Of course you can. Loads of people around us are rebuilding, are are coping, but I would say it will be shaky. And you'll be constantly nervous the rest of your life that your joy might be stolen from you again. However, if you build on Christ, if you trust in Jesus... If he's becoming your greatest joy, then joy can be taken from you, but you still have a very firm foundation to build on. Why? Because you've still got Jesus. He's sovereign over all. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Now look, if I'm being honest, would I like to grow old with my wife? and live to see any grandchildren that my sons might one day produce? Would I like to be wealthy and successful? Go on nice holidays? I'm being honest, yeah, I would. But in the face of Jesus, in his glory, does all of that fade away? Absolutely it does. It it just doesn't look as important once you're full on in the presence of Jesus. And I think that's what many of us are missing out on. Because he's not our greatest joy, we don't view loss and suffering correctly. If he's not our greatest treasure, then whatever we're ultimately treasuring is always at risk of being removed from us. And ultimately... It's only Jesus that can't be taken from you. Everything else can. You you, you can't name anything right now that can't be taken from you in an instant except Jesus. Which is why those whose joy is rooted in Him are unbelievably secure. I just want to reiterate. I'm not talking here about some kind of phony, super spiritual, everything's wonderful, when under the surface, really, it's not. I'm not talking about feeling you have to be happy and smiley the whole time, where inwardly, you hurt. But what I am saying is that if Christ is your greatest joy, whatever the circumstance, whatever the pain, whatever the difficulty, it effectively only succeeds in pushing you closer towards him and your joy remains intact. Now, if you ever studied the life of Paul in the letters of the New Testament, maybe marveled at the freedom that he seems to have. 
I guess you kind of know what I'm talking about here. It's like Paul is untouchable. You can't do anything to him. If you put him in prison, he's just going to convert the guards and all the prisoners. If you try to kill him, he just gets even more excited about the prospect of going to heaven and meeting Jesus. If you beat him and try to make an example of him, he doesn't consider the suffering of this day even worthy to be compared to the future glory. What's more, he's grateful that you're allowing him to suffer for the name of Christ. I mean, what can you do to that man? I mean, you can't do anything to rob him of his treasure, rob him of his joy. He rejoices in death, he rejoices in life, he rejoices in tribulation. You can't touch him. He's free. He's free because he knows who he belongs to. He's free because he knows that whatever happens, God hasn't abandoned him. He's free because he knows that God began all of this and God will certainly finish it. It begins and ends with him. He's going to spend eternity with him. And if you can begin remembering and rejoicing in those things, if you can start to establish this kind of gospel rhythm in your life, then you too will be unshakable, even in what Ecclesiastes calls the dark days that will be many. I think a lot of the time, myself included, we have a way of being very forgetful, We have a way of very quickly forgetting who God actually is. We have this way of very quickly forgetting that He is actually the author and the perfecter of our faith. We have a way of very quickly feeling abandoned, like no one loves us. We have a way of very quickly feeling like it's up to us to bring this thing to completion. We've got to persevere in our own strength and our own energy. It's down to us to kind of press through, and it's hard. Which leads very quickly to the final thing. I want us to see here in Habakkuk's song. Namely, the need for us constantly to be renewing our strength in God. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk is acknowledging, I cannot do this. Only God can do it. The only way I'm going to get out of this valley is by God's strength. God gives me the feet I need to get to the high places. It's God who gets me out of these valleys and up to the hills. You know what? I reckon one of the biggest dangers for us in Western culture comes from the fact that we get so much so easily because it can lead us to be way too confident in ourselves. How do I know this is true? I know it's true because we don't pray well. I know it's true because we don't run to the Bible to get fresh perspective on who Jesus is, so that our hearts might be stirred up by the Holy Spirit to worship Him more fully. I know it's true because I watch us again and again kind of buckle under the pressure when circumstances don't go our way. It's like we've been seduced into believing that our strength is adequate and it simply isn't. I'm telling you, when you believe that you've got to fix it and you've got to make it happen in your strength, you end up taking all the weight that you were never meant to bear and heaping it on your shoulders. And in doing so, it not only begins to crush you, 
but it also ends up crushing the people around you. We must do away with this whole kind of do-it-yourself mentality, this whole independent way of thinking. I'm doing it my way. I'm going alone. I've got the power. Desperately need to come to God and make it our constant prayer mantra. God, I really can't carry this. Thank you. I don't have to carry this. I believe that you will provide all that I need. I'm, I'm viewing these circumstances that I'm facing that are causing me pain right now as being sovereignly allowed by you to effectively drive me more into you. So God, I can't do it. Would you carry me today? Even though the fig tree doesn't bud, there aren't any grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, be my strength. I need you to walk with me through all of this. And as we do this, as we throw our confidence on him and off us, it's then that it creates this firm foundation for us to stand on whenever we're facing hard times. So as we draw this series to a close, we see that Habakkuk's gone on quite a journey. He's gone from a man who says, God, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, to a man who says, God, do what you will and I will rejoice and love you regardless. He's gone from a man who say, surely you wouldn't do this. Surely you won't do that. God, stop this. To God, if these are the circumstances that you choose to give me, then you will also be the strength I need to walk through this season. And that's what I think it means to be spiritually mature might not be there today, but we should at least be heading in that direction. I mean, it took Habakkuk three chapters to get there. It's taken us uh, eight weeks, uh, I guess, in this series, kind of three months to go through this book. So, it is a process. I want you to go away and reflect on these questions. Question number one, does remembering the cross transform the way you view your current situation? Does it give you faith that God is still merciful and He still loves you? Question number two, what's the foundation of your joy? What are you really after in life? Question number three, where's your strength? Where's your strength? How confident are you in you as opposed to God? And I think if you'll try and answer those questions honestly, it'll help you see where you are on the path to spiritual maturity. All on a journey, I want us all to move in closer to this place where Habakkuk ends up. Let's pray together.